0: My name is uh, Peter Nakotra, pastor of Grace Baptist Church. Harry, thank you for praying for us. I know you guys do pray for us uh, in Woodhaven, Queens. Your pastor and I have, uh, have a history. We've worked together for quite some time, and I was uh, very blessed to, uh, to labor with him and to see the work that God is doing here, i.e. you. Uh, I love this building. It's historic and just beautiful in many ways, but I love that the saints gather here. Amen. You know, that the the people of God, we are the church. The building just houses us wherever we are. Amen? Well, what I want you to do, if you will, please take out your Bible and maybe look to my left, and we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I will read, I will read the first 12 verses for context, but we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 and 2. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. And there the Apostle Paul says, View yourselves no, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who test our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you would become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your righteousness. We do thank you that you are glorious and great as we sang. And Father, now when we come to your word which is holy Infallible, inerrant, unchanging. Able to change us from the inside out. We pray that you would use your servant Lord, to encourage your people. Strengthen us. Build us up. Convict us where we need it. Make Christ greater in our own hearts and grant us a greater love and passion for him that we would live all the more for him. Lord, use your word by the power of your spirit in the people of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were to do a quick reading of those 12 verses we just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you would come away with some insights on how Paul ministered to the Thessalonians. But if you were to look a little closer and think on that for a while, what Paul is actually doing is defending his ministry. He's defending how how he came to the Thessalonians and his motive for coming. And the reason he defends himself is not because of what people thought of him. Paul didn't care what people thought of him, but he was defending himself for the gospel's sake. You see, when Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, Paul had preached for three Sabbaths in a synagogue, and some Jews were saved and some Gentiles were saved. But the unregenerated Jews became envious of Paul's success and they started an uprising against him and they ran him out of town after Paul had only been with these new converts maybe a month or two. And in Paul's absence, uh, both the unsaved Jews and Gentiles started slandering Paul and his gospel and his methods and his motives to these new Thessalonian saints. And they were undermining his authority and they were discrediting him, saying things like, Listen, if Paul was sincere and he had your best interest at heart, uh, he would have never run away. He would have never left you flat here. And what's he doing in Berea anyway? And Athens and in Corinth when you're here without his ministry and leadership. And he's just one more of those, those prophecy teachers, those who are traveling the Ignatian way. He's a charlatan. He's in it for himself. He's in it to see what he can get for himself, like money, prestige, sex power, and so on. And all you have to do is read these 12 verses and you can hear the charges that they brought against him. They said that his coming to the Thessalonians was in vain. It was of no profit, to which Paul says it actually was. They said his boldness was man-centered, which Paul says, no, it was in God and his gospel. They accused him of error and uncleanness and deceit using flattering words for his own greed. They said he sought the glory of men that he didn't care about the Thessalonians and that he was mooching off of them. And they accused him of all kinds of improprieties and ill motives, saying that he abandoned them uh, because he was out to save his own skin and he really wasn't worried about them at all. Uh, and, then, and the goal of these opponents was to create distrust uh, of the gospel uh, messengers so that they could eventually see the message die. Well, Paul defends his conduct, and again, it's not because Paul cares about what people think about him, but rather that the faith of these young believers would not be shaken. For Paul will tell us he was not ignorant of Satan's devices. Uh, And and in giving his defense, what Paul is giving them and us is what a godly minister should look like. Uh, It's what spiritual leadership should look like. And in verses 1 and 2, the first characteristic of what that should be is boldness. Boldness. And bold doesn't mean loud. It doesn't mean abrasive. It doesn't mean in your face. No, it means confidence, assurance to speak freely, to speak unhindered. And this word is used nine times in the New Testament, and it is always used for speaking the gospel. Throughout the Book of Acts, we see the apostles and others speaking the word of God boldly. Jesus spoke boldly and unashamedly. In John seven, the Jewish leader said, "If anyone saw Jesus at the feast, they should tell them, because they wanted to kill him." But Jesus shows up and he preaches to to the people in the temple. And we read in verses twenty six and twenty seven. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, "Is this not he whom they seek to kill?" But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. So he goes into the heart of the fire, and he preaches the gospel. In John 8, 44, he tells the unbelieving Jews, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you wish to do. That's bold. Matthew 23, he woed the scribes and Pharisees seven times for being religious hypocrites and misleading the people. That's bold. John the Baptist. John the Baptist told Herod it was sinful for him. It was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. That's bold. Right? All ministers of the gospel must be bold to speak the truth. They can't be wishy-washy on it. They can't be apologetic because of it. They can't be inhibited or hold back or buckle under pressure. The Puritan William Grinnell said this, If men be bold to sin, ministers must be bold to reprove. So a gospel minister must be bold, as all Christians should be bold, to declare and defend the truth. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And he said in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, concerning the glory to come, he said, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Well, what I'd like to do this morning in a sermon entitled, or titled, Holy Boldness, is to give you four realities or, or truisms of holy boldness, Uh, and they are holy boldness has a purpose. Holy boldness is in God. I'm sorry, holy boldness brings adversity. Holy holy boldness is in God and in his gospel. And finally, holy boldness is unshakable. Let's look at the first one. Holy boldness has a purpose. Verse 1, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, by purpose, I mean it was fruitful, it had an aim, uh, and it was bold to fulfill it. Or as Paul says, it is not in vain. Uh, And and Paul starts his defense by saying, for you yourselves know, brethren. And he's appealing to what they already knew to be true. He's appealing to that. Uh, And and Paul said that they knew something in verse 1, 2, 5, and 11, just of this chapter. Uh, and, and, And what they know is his approach and character, and they know his ministry firsthand. He'll say in chapter 1, verse 5, you know, he says to them, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So their experience with Paul is not what his opponents are claiming. The Thessalonians know that Paul's coming to them brought about a radical change in their lives, right? They know that. Uh, They know that their world was turned upside down for the better. They know that Paul was a man with a one-track mind and that was for the glory of God and God was glorified in the saving of sinners and in the raising up of sinners. So the Thessalonian saints, uh, they knew Paul's coming to them was not in vain. And vain means empty-handed, of no purpose, fruitless, of no value. It literally means an empty vessel. So basically, you have nothing to show for it. You have nothing to show for it. Paul's accusers were saying nothing good came from Paul's time with them. Uh, That it was a waste of time. uh, That they had nothing to show for it. And there are indeed, there are indeed many things in life that are vain and are a waste of time, like trusting in wealth, or your own abilities, or your own knowledge, or the economy, right? Psalm 39, 6 says, it is a vain thing to trust in or to amass riches. Uh, it's also a vain thing to trust in science for the answers of life or, or government for protection. Psalm thirty three seventeen says, a horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver by any of its great strength. It is a vain thing to try to create a life of ease and comfort or or to trust in the educational system to, to teach you and your family what really matters. It is a vain thing to try to find happiness in another person or a job or a hobby. It is a vain thing to trust in your religious observances or affiliations or denomination or your good deeds To keep and or to find favor with God. And sadly, multitudes of people are going through the religious motions to be saved and to secure their spot in heaven. But that's in vain. It's also also in vain for churches to put on glitzy and glamorous, glamorous services to stir up the emotions of people speaking great swelling words instead of presenting the glorious gospel. Listen, we don't need theatrics. We need sound theology. Uh, we don't need a centrally driven church. No, we need a spirit-driven church. Psalm 127, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So it's a vain thing to try to build. To try to And build the church in man's power, or man's wisdom, or man's techniques or strategies. And that's not how Paul came to the Thessalonians, and that's not how he went to anybody. He didn't come with deceit, or with flattery as a cloak of covetousness, or with a view to to glorify himself. Uh, Unfortunately, many were, and and, and many are preaching a man-centered gospel this day, which can bear no fruit, because it is a gospel that has no power. But Paul's gospel was the gospel of God, he says in verse 2, and it came in the power of God. And it changed hearts, the hearts of Jews and Gentiles, and it made them the one new man in Christ. So Paul didn't bring vain words, words that make people feel good, uh, nor did he speak about philosophy or theory or, or the commandments of men. But he brought to them sound words, the wholesome words of God. He warned the saints in Ephesians 5, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Uh, and empty words are vain words. They're useless words. They're false words. So, so Paul knew that, that, that wherever the word of God went out in boldness and in the power of the Spirit, it was not in vain. He knew that. Whether God saved a few, like in Athens, or many, like in Corinth or Thessalonica, He knew that the gospel was the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So Paul's ministry in Thessalonica may have been short and it may have been abrupt, uh, but it was forceful and it was fruitful and it was not in vain. Uh, And the proof is in the pudding because we read in chapter 1 of this letter about the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope of the Corinthians, and how the gospel was sounded forth all over Greece and beyond by these saints. So it's not in vain. And, brothers and sisters, don't ever see what you do for the Lord as vain. Don't think the time you invest sharing with people and discipling people or helping the lost or praying for them is a waste of time. It's not. Because we can't see what God may be doing behind the scenes, so to speak. We can't see what's going on in the depth of someone's heart. Remember about four or five years ago, we were preaching in Queens on a corner and a young lady named Jocelyn Reyes stopped by and I don't remember her stopping by, but she did. She maybe stood for 30 seconds, heard one of us preaching, took a track and went home. She took that track and she threw it on her dresser in her bedroom and it stayed there for a year. And then something happened, something was going on. She picked it up, she read it, she came. This is a year later. Six months after that, God saved her soul. So so we really don't have a clue, uh, you know, what God is doing in our lives. Uh, And there are so many other stories, and you probably have a ton of them here, of how God is using people in the everyday mundane, mundane things of life to draw others to himself and to grow them. So we really don't have a clue. How God will use our witness, or our prayer, or our acts of love in the lives of others. But if we are bold to do so and bold to proclaim the truth, He will, and it will not be in vain. Just as Paul said to said uh, said of his being in a Roman prison was not in vain in Philippians one. Now the backstory there is. He's writing to the Philippian church, a church which he started, he planted, and they're really troubled that the the, the apostle to the Gentiles, the great apostle Paul, church planter, is is holed up in a Roman Roman jail. He's under house arrest, and he's there for two years. And they think this is a stoppage of the gospel going out. But he says, no, it's not the case at all, actually, because my chains... Have actually furthered the gospel. And this is what he says in verses 12 to 14. He says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. You would think me being chained to a Roman guard 24 7 for two years in a row would cripple the gospel, but not so. Not so. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains and are much more bold to speak without fear. Not only that, but if you were to read the last chapter of Philippians chapter 4 when he sends greetings as he often does at the end of his epistles, you know what he says? Those of Caesar's household greet you. That guy... The Apostle Paul and others, but the Apostle Paul, two years under lock and key. Those guards watching him, do you imagine the gospel they got? You know, six guys, four hours a day, three feet away on a chain. God saves them. Holy boldness has a purpose. Secondly, holy boldness brings adversity. Chapter 2, verse 2. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know. When you boldly and unapologetically share the gospel, you, you're going to have some adversity at times. You will rub some people the wrong way. Right? You will have some who will come against you. Right? Jesus boldly preached the gospel. He faithfully shared the truth. And the Jews, and particularly the religious establishment— came hard against him. The one who was the most holy man in his humanity, no man was as holy as Jesus who has ever lived. The one who had not an ounce of ill in his heart toward any man. The one who only loved all men was vehemently opposed by men. He told his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He told his brothers in John 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. He said in John 15, They hated me without a cause. And they called him all kinds of names. They said he was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that wasn't wasn't a, a nice term. They said he was born of fornication, that he had a demon, that he got his power from Satan. Call them a deceiver, right? So they were his enemies. They hated him for, for showing them who they were. Hypocrites, legalists, unsaved. Well, Paul had great adversity for preaching the gospel as well, right? He was persecuted in just about every single city he went into because the gospel is offensive to natural man. They do not want to hear that they have a sin problem. They do not want to hear that there is a judgment for sin. A couple of months ago, we were at a, a church barbecue around the 4th of July, and I met this couple, young couple, sitting on a, at, at a, at a, somewhere in the park. I started talking to them, and, and it was good. He told me he was spiritual, and I honestly don't know what that means. When people say I'm spiritual, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and so we talked a little bit, and he was okay with Jesus and God, and all that was all fine. He was good. That could fit his category. But it was not okay that God would ever judge sin. And the idea that God would send anyone to hell, well, that's not the kind of God he knew. That's, the kind, that's, 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 that's common. Right? People don't like that the only way to heaven is through Christ. It's the most narrow saying in the history of the world. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That leaves you no option but him. They don't like that. Or the idea of having to repent of their sins and surrender to Christ. Because humility is an idea that really repulses most of us. We don't like that. It's weak. As Jesus said in John 3 that men love darkness and hate the light because the light exposes their sin. So the gospel is an abrasive message, it strips man of every single ounce of his perceived goodness. It renders him helpless and hopeless of ever making himself acceptable for God. So you can't boldly share the gospel and not at times get some kickback. Remember Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 he was sending them out as, as sheep in the midst of wolves. Just think of that visual for a second. Sheep in the midst of wolves. We know wolves don't like sheep unless they're eating them. It never goes well for the sheep. Well, Paul says that he had suffered and was spitefully treated at Philippi. And what he's talking about is the persecution he endured in Philippi before he came to Thessalonica. And when he went to Philippi, a demon-possessed slave girl who was a fortune teller kept annoying Paul. And eventually, he cast the demon out of her. And because of that, she's no longer a fortune teller. And her owners were furious because they made a lot of money off of her. So now their golden goose was cooked. Uh, and they went on the attack against Paul and Silas and they dragged them before the, 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 the rulers of the city and they accused them of disrupting the city. And then the crowd starts beating them and the magistrates have them stripped naked and had them beaten with rods. Uh, and, and Asubius, the early church father, gave an explanation, if you will, or, you know, of, of, of flogging, uh, being flogged, of those who were flogged in Smyrna. He said this, their back was frighteningly lacerated. The Christian martyrs in Smyrna were so torn by the scourging that their veins were laid bare and their inner muscles and sinews and their entails were exposed. Right? So their veins, muscles, tendons, guts, all coming out of their backs. And we read then that they threw them in prison and put their feet in stocks. And stocks were also an instrument of torture with with a long strip of wood with a bunch of holes in them and they would stretch your feet out as absolutely far as they could go and put them in a hole and put them in a hole and you couldn't move. And and it brought about great pain besides the lacerating pain of their sliced open backs. So Paul preaches the gospel in Philippi and gets beaten badly uh, and then is imprisoned for it, but he says he was also spitefully treated. And spitefully treated means he was treated shamefully uh, to be verbally abused or, or to be treated harshly. And how they treated him spitefully is that, is that he and, and Silas were publicly stripped naked and flogged and that without a hearing or any legal proceedings. And it was against Roman law to flog and imprison a Roman soldier without a trial and both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Well, Paul's point in mentioning what happened in Philippi is, is that right after that, they were bold to come to the Thessalonians and preach the same gospel to them. And he didn't have to go to them. He could have packed up his bags and went back to Tarsus or Antioch, his sending church. Or he just could have taken a sabbatical from sharing the gospel. I'm taking the next six months off. I'm just not going to do this for a while. I could have decided just to go full-time into the tent-making business. And quite honestly, he probably would have lived longer and felt a lot better. Or he could have come to the Thessalonians and just tone down the message. Maybe speak to a person here or there, behind closed doors, instead of going into the synagogue. I mean, you go into a synagogue and you're going into like a a hotbed of trouble. Because there are going to be some people there that are not going to like the fact that Jesus is king and the Messiah. Or, he just could have spoken about God's love for them. How he has a wonderful plan for your life. Could have eliminated words like sin. Right? Just take that out of the repertoire. Hell, judgment, wrath, damnation. Just get rid of all those words. Right? Not uncommon today. You can listen to guys preach and never hear any of that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. Paul loved them too much and cared about their eternal estate too much to not come and boldly preach the full counsel of the word of God to them. See, for some of us, for some of us, if we share the gospel and get shot down or hit some adversity, eh, you know, we kind of curl up and go away. If we share with someone and they are offended by that, we become gun and we don't want to do that again. So maybe the next time we don't speak up or maybe we dance around the gospel. The right? point is, if we get roughed up for sharing our faith, we might say, that's enough. I'm not cut out for this. I think Max is evangelistic. Maybe one or two or three more. We'll let those guys do it. Why do I got to go out there? Don't we pay guys to do this stuff? But we want not to be that way. And nor was Paul that way. No, he went right into Thessalonica with the exact same message that got him beaten to a pulp in Philippi. And he knew it could go south in Thessalonica. And it did go south to a degree where he hit adversity. But that didn't stop him. You see, he only had one message. And all men needed to hear that one message. And before God, he was bold to share it. I like the fact in your bulletin, once a month, Pastor Harry, one o'clock, I think, on a Sunday, come on in. He will share the gospel. What does it mean? What does it mean? I'm sure he's going to share it, you know, unadulterated. Amen. We need to do that. We need to do that. Men need to hear that. Uh, and brothers and sisters, if, if you share the truth, the truth is some people aren't going to like it. And some people are going to come against you. And they'll speak evil of you. Maybe they'll try to hurt you financially. Or to shame you. Or, or, or maybe even physically harm you. But they so desperately need to hear the truth because they are immersed in lies and they'll be damned in the end because of them. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be bold to speak up for Christ at school, even though some teachers will have it out for you. Share with your coworkers as God gives you opportunity and neighbors, even though some will speak behind your back. And they'll call you names. And if you get beaten down for boldly sharing the gospel, get up and boldly share it somewhere else or with someone else. So holy boldness has a purpose. Secondly, holy boldness brings adversity. Now third, holy boldness is in God and in his gospel. Verse 2b. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Well, holy boldness stems not from man or his might, but from God. Paul wasn't bold in himself. Wasn't bold in his great learning. Wasn't bold in his track record. He was bold in God. He was bold in the one who created and sustains all things. He was bold in the one who elected the saints before the foundation of the world. Uh, Bold and the one who said, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He was bold and the one who is sovereign over all and is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He was bold in the Lord because the Lord said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So, no demon, nor the devil, nor man can stop God's will from being fulfilled. You could kill the messenger, you cannot kill the message. They can't keep the gospel from going out to God's elect and being drawn in by it. And so, too, then, we must be bold in our God. For Paul says, notice, he says, Our God. It's our God. He says, It's our God because he is personally our God. He's the only God and we know him. Brothers and sisters, we are told in in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you know God and him who he sent. And he doesn't mean knowledge. He means you know him experientially. You know him intimately, right? That's what he's saying. He's our God. We know him. We know him all those ways. Uh, and, And the reason the reason we can be bold even in the midst of adversities is because we're bold in our God. We're bold in who He is. We're bold in what He has done. We're bold in what He says He will do. And we know with Him, nothing is impossible. And He commands us to share His gospel, and we have confidence that He will use our efforts as meager and frail, and at times, you know, weak they are. He'll use them to fulfill his end. Isn't it amazing? He doesn't need us to do anything. He needs us to do nothing. And yet his plan of drawing the elect to himself and growing his church is through the church, through his people. He saves us to use us to bring him glory. Amen? That's a privilege. That's a privilege. And here's the thing. Notice Paul says, we're bold to speak to you the gospel of of God. The gospel of God. You know what that means? That means it's God's gospel. It's his plan of salvation. It's his good news for sinners. It's his way that men are reconciled to him. And, and Paul will call it the gospel of God two more times in this chapter and three more times in other epistles. Uh, and this was to counter those who were bringing the gospel of man. And you can hear the gospel of man in many churches today. Right now, it's ringing out. Where man is exalted and his temporal needs are the focus. Where man's works are called for in order to earn favor with God and to maintain those favors. Where man has to let Christ into his heart while Jesus patiently waits for you to answer the call. Because if you don't answer it, he can't come. So every religion or belief that says you got to do something, well, that's another gospel. That's another gospel. That's man's gospel. Well, Paul says, we were bold to speak to you the gospel of God because he was bold in God. And God's gospel is God's word, which is perfect and flawless, as he is perfect and flawless. And his gospel is life-giving. As Peter will tell us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he said this, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible How'd that come? Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. So if we are 100% persuaded that God is all-glorious, that God is all-powerful, that God is truth, and that his gospel is man's only way to be forgiven of their sins and made right with him without violating his justice, then we can boldly share it with the lost around us, whether they're princes or whether they're paupers. And then, as the hymn writer said, we can stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Don't be like so many Christians who are unwilling to boldly speak up for Christ and to proclaim the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we see holy boldness has a purpose. Holy boldness brings adversity. Holy boldness is in God and his gospel. And finally, holy boldness is unshakable. And that's going to be the last part of verse two. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict, in much conflict. So Paul was bold, even in much conflict. And the word conflict means contention. Uh, And it's the Greek word agon, which comes from another Greek word, which we get the word agonize from. And agon was actually a place, and it was where the Greeks assembled for the Olympics. The idea here is of a conflict which an athlete must engage in, right, in order to win the prize. It's the blood, sweat, and tears that he or she would go through in order to be a victor. And Paul is using this Uh, uh, for the conflict that he goes through in bringing the gospel. It's the battle he fights to bring the gospel to the unsaved. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. Brothers and sisters, you know, we're in a battle. We're soldiers. We're in a war. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we're told. Right? So it's a battle. It's a battle, but we know the outcome. Christ is victorious, and we are in him as well. But it's a battle. I have fought the good fight, he says. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So Paul had boldness in the, in the face of opposition. He spoke up in the midst of persecutors. He shared the gospel even in trying circumstances. Right, he said to the saints in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he said, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why, Paul? For a great and effective door is open to me And there are many adversaries. So he has an opportunity to stay and share the gospel, but he says there are many adversaries. But the many adversaries didn't cause him to run out of Ephesus. Instead, because the door of ministry was open to him, he determined to stay there. And just because the law opens a door for us to share the gospel, it does not mean that we're not going to have adversaries that there's not going to be struggles, that there won't be persecution. There may well be. We, of course, would love free and easy witnessing opportunities, would you not? Somebody just comes up to you and says, you're a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? How does somebody get to heaven? Wouldn't you love that? In baseball analogy, that's like a fastball down the heart of the plate. But you know and I know it doesn't always work that way. You've got to labor a little. You've got to you know, you've got to work them over a little. You've got to speak a little, share a little, talk a little, listen a little. But we would love that. We would love sharing with no conflict. But sometimes that's not the case. We must remember this. We must remember the nature of the gospel and the nature of men. And they're, they're directly opposed. And sometimes God is most glorified when we share boldly the gospel in the midst of opposition. Right? So so God may open a door for us, but conflict may come and it's usually to keep us trusting in him and not in ourselves. Well, let me close by asking you two questions and leaving you with one thought. And the first question is this. Do you agonize to get the gospel to your unsaved loved ones and friends and neighbors? Do you agonize to get the gospel to your unsaved friends and family and loved ones. A follow-up to that would be, will you agonize for the sake of souls? Right? At the end of the day, the most important thing in anyone's life is that they be right with Christ. Right At the end of the day, they so desperately need him and they don't know they need him would you be willing to agonize that they would hear about him? Will you endure all things and even agonize so the elect will come to know Christ? Brothers and sisters, if you are confident in the gospel, let's start there. If you are confident in the gospel, if you believe that every word of the word of God is true and that the gospel is man's only hope, and if you are confident of that, if you can stand on that, well, then you can have confidence in sharing it, right? Right? And if you don't have confidence today and you're not one who will agonize for the sake of souls, then pray. God, grow me in this area. Take away my fears. Let me talk to my mother, my father, my children, my brothers and sisters, my grandparents. Give me grace to care more about their souls than about how it may reflect on me. Pray that prayer, and you'll see what God will do, right? We'll see what God will do. My second question is this. Do you throw in the towel when you had opposition from sharing the gospel? And I know this is a natural response in the flesh because I have thrown many towels in. But let us remember. Remember who they're really persecuting and who they are really rejecting. And that is really not you or me, but that is Christ. You see, they reject us because they reject him. And when they reject us sharing with them, they're rejecting Christ. When Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus came to him, and what did he ask him? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So when you persecute his people, you persecute him. When you reject his people, you reject him. And let us remember that men are at war with the Lord. Right? Man is at enmity with God. There's a war going on. That's why the peacemaker had to come. And that's why you and I are peacemakers. We bring the gospel of peace. You bring the peace treaty, which is the gospel, which is signed in the very blood of Jesus. And listen, if they reject it, that's on them. That's on them. But if God uses it to draw them, they become our family. They will worship God with you and I forever and ever. Amen? Now here's my thought, and my thought is this. Remember that Christ coming to earth was not in vain. He fulfilled the will of the Father, which was to live a holy and sinless life as a man which you and I, of course, can't do, and to atone for all the sins of all his elect at the cross. And his mission was accomplished. He defeated and conquered what defeated and conquered us. Sin, death, and the devil. And he did it for us. And the proof that he did those things, uh, and that sin and death and the devil uh, can no longer condemn us or hold us, is the resurrection. Right? The resurrection is the absolute guarantee that Every question and doubt concerning the things of God, concerning redemption, concerning sin and the and the subjection to sin, were completed and finished in Christ. Right, that's kind of like God's seal of approval of it is finished. Jesus cries out, "It is finished." How do we know it was finished? How do we know a sin or two didn't slip by and Jesus missed one or two? Well, God raised them from the dead. God wouldn't do that if there was sin, sin still sin on the slate. So it was the seal of approval. He has purchased righteousness and redemption and everlasting life for us. And he has already prepared a place for us in glory. So his first coming was not in vain. And nor will his second coming be. For he will gather his elect unto himself and condemn all who have rejected him in this life. And and if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, understand this that your life so far has been in vain. It's been in vain. All your achievements, all your successes, every single thing you've accumulated, at the end of the day, it's in vain. It's in vain. They're not going to matter. They're not going to matter in the end because one day you will die and you will take with you to the day of judgment just one thing. Your sins, your stuff isn't going with you. Your sins are going to go with you. And Christ, who is the judge, will eternally condemn you for them. But your life doesn't have to be in vain anymore. Starting today, that could change. That could change. You could look to Christ and his cross and cry out for forgiveness of your sins. You can plead with him today for mercy. And guess what the scripture says? He is rich in mercy we sang that song about wrapping his loving lambs around us. I forget which one, but I love that. He says, come. That's a universal invitation. Come. Come, leave your sin at the door. That narrow gate is narrow for a reason. You can't take your sin in there. Just you. Drop it outside. Surrender. Come to him. Cry out for mercy and see what he will do. He has never said no to someone who truly sought him and confess their sins, and cried out for mercy. He's never said, no, you're not, you're not good enough. Come. Surrender. Cry out. And then be forgiven of your sin. Be given the gift of faith, which will assure you that God so loved you that he sent his son to die for you, which will assure you that Christ so loved you that he died for you. And then you can have boldness in this life, You can have boldness in the day of judgment. Amen? And listen, if you don't understand these things, if you don't know if you're really a Christian or not, if it sounds nice but it doesn't mean anything in your heart, day-to-day life, talk to Pastor Harry. Talk to one of the leaders of the church. Don't leave here with questions. You have people that can answer them. For the good of your soul, get the answers. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ was so bold as to come into this world take on humanity live flawlessly subject himself to the suffering at the hands of men and then suffering at your hands for the sins of his people and that he rose again victorious over it all Thank you for the gospel that has the power to save anyone who believes. Thank you for the gift of faith through which we do believe and are saved. And Father, for those of us who know you, for those who have been born again and have been given life and the life that's more abundant, I pray that we would be free and bold and delightful to share the truth Lord, may it be that we would build relationships so that we could share. May it be that we would, as we rub shoulders with people where you providentially have put put us, uh, Lord, to use those, that influence that we have and to share. Lord, if Christ is in us, let him come out of us to those who so desperately need to hear it. And Lord, for the soul of souls sitting here today that, that aren't truly born again, and they're not in your kingdom, they're Their life so far has been vain. They have nothing good to show for it, no matter how much they've accumulated. What they need desperately is you, and they need Christ, and they need the Spirit of God. Lord, would you be pleased to drive them to the cross? Would you be pleased to save their souls? And would you do that for your glory's sake? In Jesus' name, amen.